Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Lecture 11 in my Defense of the Faith series. I say that and I almost find myself saying Defense Against the Dark Arts series, but no, this was my Defending the Faith series from Institute class back in the spring semester of 1989 at the University of Texas at Austin. Now, there were 12 classes originally given. I have some good news and some bad news for you. The bad news is that if you like this series of episodes, episode 12 managed to get completely lost. I have the tape for it, but it is blank. There is no sound whatsoever on the tape. This is explained by the fact that it is not the original tape. I sent all of the originals to a little mom and pop shop in Utah somewhere called Tree of Life Productions, and the idea was that they were interested in mass producing these lectures and putting them on the market. Market. Well, I think they closed up shop pretty much around the time that I was sending these to them. They never got mass produced. They never got produced even a little bit, to my knowledge. And so they returned to me the master tapes that they had created from the originals. And by the time, many years later, that I finally listened to these tapes, I found out that there was nothing recorded on the 12th tape. The 12th lecture is completely gone. You will hear me refer in this 11th lecture to the 12th lecture, and apparently it was a potpourri or a potpourri, a hodgepodge of different responses to different miscellaneous anti-Mormon arguments against the Lord's restored church on the face of the earth. So that's the bad news. Tape number 12, lecture number 12 on the 12th tape is entirely missing. I cannot find it. I will not be able to reproduce it. Now, what is the good news? The good news is that if you don't like this series, then lecture 12 is missing. There is no audio on it. I cannot produce it. You will never hear it. So that's the good news and the bad news of the situation. Now, Lecture 11 deals with a further breakdown of the issue of salvation by grace versus salvation by works, according to the Bible. And I think I do a yeoman's job of dismantling the born-again position on this subject. I'll let you listen to the lecture and decide for yourself. Once again, if you hear a baby cooing, and maybe not just cooing, maybe getting a little bit upset during this lesson toward the end, that's my firstborn child, my daughter, Sylvia, who is being brought to class by her mother. We started him young in the Radio Free Mormon household. So here's the tape of the 11th lecture. I hope you enjoy it. Play the tape. Come on in. Bring you up to speed. You'll recall that last week we were talking about the doctrine of solafidianism. Can anybody tell me what that is as a quick review? Saved by grace alone. Right. Acting on alone, exactly. Saved only by grace and by nothing else. That's the doctrine of solafidianism. And last week we talked about a number of things. General salvation, how that is taught in the Bible, whether anybody who's a born-again Christian believes it or not. We talked about uh, that we are, in fact, the only church that believes in grace without works. In fact, the born-agains believe that you have to do a work, namely accepting Christ, at the very least, anyway, to uh, be saved. Uh, we talked about the Judaizers. We talked about a number of scriptures uh, that deal with the fact that, in, that we will be judged according to our works. And uh, a few other things. And then I was beginning to address some ways in which... Uh, other than those scriptures, we can defend our doctrine of being judged by our works. 
which indeed is taught in many of the most famous passages of the Bible. And we just left off, we talked about 1 Corinthians 13, the charity chapter, where it says that if I have all faith and have not charity, I can do nothing. We talked about the Sermon on the Mount and how that verse after verse after verse declares that Christ instituted a much more difficult law when he did away with the law of Moses. It wasn't that he just did away with the law and left a vacuum. He put a much more difficult law there. And we talked about the judgment day. And how if you ask someone what you'll be judged by on the judgment day, the natural response is, to by your works. And that's true. And we talked about the scripture and revelations that uh, supports that notion. Now note that I think, anyway, that up to this point we have completely demonstrated without question the fact that we will be judged according to our works. The fact that that's an absolutely essential element in our judgment and in our eventual destiny for eternity. I think we might have even come to the point of beating a dead horse. We're going to beat it a little more, okay? The thing I want you to note is that up to this point, even though, I, even though we we're practically beating a dead horse by this time, we haven't even mentioned the epistle of James. We haven't even mentioned that yet. And yet most people in, inside the church as well would think that that's our one stronghold, our bastion against this Solifidianism, because we've got the epistle of James here. Now the epistle of James is an interesting epistle in that in a lot of the things it says concerning this doctrine of uh, salvation, it's directed squarely against the born-again Christians of today. It is directed squarely against those people who hold those kinds of beliefs. I think most of us are familiar with Martin Luther's attitude toward the epistle of James. He considered it an epistle of straw, quote-unquote, which was the value he placed on it, straw. He wanted to take it out of the Bible. He didn't want it in there, and he would have taken it out of the Bible, except that I imagine the, the peer pressure was a little too great. Martin Luther was a great man. He did a lot of great things, but the epistle of James just kept telling him squarely in his face that his doctrine of salvation by grace alone was not correct. And that's why he didn't like it. Let's read a little bit from James now. Some very, very pertinent passages. Chapter 1, verses 22 through 27. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. That verse alone would seem to be unassailable. Then it goes on, For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass or in a mirror. For he beholds himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Then it goes on to say that if any man among you seem to be religious, maybe I should put the accent on seem, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridles not his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So that's how pure religion is defined by James. It's defined in terms of acts, not in terms of beliefs. And then we go on into chapter 2. I'll go over this rather quickly because I know you're so familiar with it. Beginning in verse 14. What is the profit, my brothers, though a man say he has faith and have not works, can faith save him? 
If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you don't give them those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? What good does it do? Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? You do well. The devils also believe and tremble. I mean, just imagine how this cuts to the quick of people who believe in Solophidianism. Obviously, James didn't. But will you know, vain man, that faith without works is dead? And then he talks about Abraham. Now, this is interesting because in another epistle of Paul's, Paul talks about Abraham to talk about salvation by grace. And I believe that's in Galatians. And he uses him as an example of how he was saved by grace. And the reason he uses him as an example there, you'll note, by grace, is because he was saved before the law of Moses was introduced. Right? The law of Moses came a long time after Abraham. And yet, Paul is showing Abraham in Galatians as a man who was saved without the law of Moses. So he's showing to the Judaizers, and you remember we talked about them, that you don't need the law of Moses to be saved then. There's something better than that. Okay? And that's why he uses Abraham in Galatians to talk to the Judaizers. But now, James is using the same example of Abraham to talk to the born-again Christians of his time to show that works are necessary. He says in verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? See how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Now doesn't that, that verse right there, verse 24, sound like a wonderful expression of Mormon doctrine? This is James 2. I'll read it again. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. So James is just saying the same thing we're saying. It's by faith and works. Not by one or the other, but by both. And then he gives another example. Likewise, also, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works? Who's Rahab the harlot? She was the one that um, watched the spies for Joshua's men. Right. She took Joshua and another guy in. She was in Jericho. Exactly. So, likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. She saved them. And because of that, she and her family were saved. They were the only people saved when Jericho fell. So he's saying she was justified by her works too. Then he sums it up in verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And that's exactly how dead it is. There. Surely the morning has read the epistle of James. Yes, they have. At least, uh, I assume some, a lot of them have. Seems pretty clear to you and me. Yes, it does. Are they dead? Uh, they don't have the gift of the Holy Ghost. Okay. I'll say that much. Beyond that, I won't uh, make any statement as to their intellectual prowess. But it's often been thought by born-again, by biblical commentators, that James and Paul were fighting against each other. Here's James over here, the advocate of works. Here's Paul over here, the advocate of grace. But as it should have become clear now, as I've explained things, and as, as we've looked at the context, they weren't fighting against each other. They were back-to-back -back fighting different enemies. 
Paul fighting the Judaizers, those who wanted to return to the law of Moses, those works, and James fighting against the people who probably took what Paul wrote and said, okay, we don't have to do anything anymore, just as it's done today, and saying, no, you have to be righteous. You have to do righteous works. Now, uh, last week, Larry brought up, uh, I think it was Larry, maybe Colleen, about well, what is it that they believe? How do they believe works fit in? And I'm going to tell you what their doctrine is, at least from this book, The Mormon Illusion, how it's enunciated here. There are many variations that uh, born-again Christians have, but this is certainly a prominent one. And works do fit in here in a certain way. The basic concept is that you don't do good works to be saved. You do good works after you are saved in order to prove that you are saved. And let me quote here from Mormon Illusion, so you'll see that I'm getting this from the book and not making it up. 158 and 159. Here it is. Saving faith, if it is real, always produces good works. Not in order to be saved, but as proof that one has been saved. Okay. So this is the particular version that the author of this book, Floyd McElveen, adheres to, and he is a Baptist minister the Evangel Baptist Church in Bremerton, Washington. All right, so that's what he, he uh, maintains. So, if I may go along then, and let's follow out this doctrine, because it has some intrinsic problems with it. So, in other words, what he's saying is, your salvation either happens or doesn't happen at the moment you accept Christ, but the rest of a person's life is spent determining whether they were really saved at that moment or not. Okay? So if they go on and do good works, it proves they really were saved at that time. And if they don't do good works, then they weren't saved. So, in a nutshell, this is their view. And I'm going to contrast it with our view. See if you can tell any difference. Their view is you look at the person's life after he accepted Christ and judge by their works whether they were really saved when they accepted Christ. The Mormon view, on the other hand, is you look at the person's life after he accepted Christ and judge by their works whether they are saved as of the time their life is over. Those are both very fair and accurate statements of their view, or at least of his view, and our view. And you know what the only difference is there? The time you look at. They look at as of the time they accepted Christ. We look at as of the time the life is over. Now, Floyd the author here, spends a great deal of time, ink, effort, trying to convince everyone who's going to read his book how different we are from them. How heinous we are because we put any emphasis at all in works. And how righteous they are because they're solely under grace. And yet, ironically, their view and our view is for all intents and purposes exactly the same. The bottom line is, both in our view and his view, that we are judged by our works to see if we are saved. That's what it amounts to on both sides. Richard? Are there people who say that if a person is saved, goes on for a while doing good works, and then slips, they're still saved? I'm glad you asked that because that leads right into my next subject, because this is an immense problem 
for born-again Christians. Yes, there are some who say that. There are some who say, once saved, always saved. And the reason why there's so much conflict is because this theological doctrine of solophidianism now leads them into a tremendous problem. They've painted themselves into a theological corner with this one. And let me demonstrate it to you, what this problem is. Now, there are other problems that we know that certain churches have. Basically, every other church other than this one has this problem because they don't believe in the pre-existence. In other words, because they're lacking something of the true gospel, they have all these problems that they really can't answer. Because they don't believe in the pre-existence, other churches have the problem, where did sin come from? Where does evil come from? Since they don't believe in the pre-existence, since they believe God created everything out of nothing, then God must be the author of evil. See, and this is their problem, but God can't be the author of evil because he is only the author of good. And so this incorrect doctrine gives them an incredible problem because it makes a conflict in their theology. Well, in the same way, this doctrine of solophidianism has created another immense theological problem. And that problem is stated in this question, just like you said. Once an individual has been saved, is it possible for him to fall away and lose his saved status? That's the problem. Now you think, what's so hard about that? Okay, here's what's so hard about that. This is also called, as they, they say sometimes, the once saved, always saved doctrine. And they're almost forced into that. They're forced into that because of this belief they have. For instance, let me give you a, a, an experience I had with a, a man who was on campus here. He goes around with Campus Crusade for Christ. His name's Keith Connecty, or Connecto, something like that. But he was over here speaking in the public area. Lots of people around. Someone asked him the question about once a person saved, can he fall away? His answer was, I don't know. That seems like a pretty basic question. And yet here's a, a big wig representative going around talking to college students. He doesn't know. The reason why is once again because of this problem. Okay, this is the problem. A, if a person is saved when he accepts Christ, he will not fall away. And B, if he should fall away, he wasn't really saved to begin with. Okay, are you getting this from their point of view? If he accepted Christ and was saved, he's not going to fall away. And if he does fall away after he accepted Christ, then he never was saved at all. So according to their belief, a person who has been saved cannot fall away. If he's been saved, he can't fall away. That's part of being saved. And that's how they get themselves in this kind of theological corner. And there's really no problem with that, is there? I mean, if that's their doctrine, that's fine. Once a person's saved, he can't fall away. Where they get into real problems is because that's in direct contradiction with what the Bible states on at least two occasions. The first one is in Hebrews chapter 4, verses, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Because the Bible's quite explicit that once a person is saved, yes, he or she can fall away. In Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, it says this, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Now, obviously, that's just part of a sentence, but he's saying it's impossible for these people who've had all these wonderful experiences, who obviously have been saved if they've had these experiences, it's impossible for them to do something. And he goes on in verse 6 and says what it's impossible for them to do. Notice he doesn't say it's impossible for them to fall away. What he does say 
It says, impossible for these individuals, in verse 6, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So here, not only does Paul not say that it's impossible for those who have been saved to fall away, he says expressly that it is possible for those who have been saved to fall away. But what he says it's impossible is that once they have fallen away, to renew themselves again and to repentance. And we know exactly what that's talking about. I don't think really anybody else does, but we know about sons of perdition. And the other place, or at least another place, where it talks about this is in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. Peter here is saying the same thing as Paul. Once you've been saved and made partakers of this holy gift, you can turn away. And if you do, Paul says you can't renew yourself unto repentance. Peter says the former end where you weren't saved is better than the latter end after you've turned away from it. And once again, we know what that means and what that's talking about. Another one I like is in Galatians, and I like Galatians because they tend to they do. Where you give the long list of um, things that will keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. So it's basically bad works will keep you out. The good works can't keep you or won't get you in. Right. Contradiction. And that's right. Yes, it is. And I think it goes all the way from like 19 through 21, listing all these different bad things that, that will keep you out of the kingdom of God. That's a very good one. Now, here's another claim. We're almost finishing this up, believe it or not. Yes, um, Larry. It, I think it simply demonstrates the shallowness of, of study on their part, but actually most of the people I've asked about this say that people can fall from grace. Mm -hmm. Okay. I haven't, I haven't run in very often to people who say once they know, say. Okay. But obviously, in order to fall from grace, you do it through works. Yes. Because works don't play a part in doing bad works. Right. And is it grace, really, if bad works takes it away from you? Because grace shouldn't be based on works. Not only do they contradict the Bible, they contradict themselves. Yes. And it's just because they don't have the Holy Ghost when they're trying to understand what dead prophets have written. They don't have a living prophet to guide them. Remember, in, in this context, I've got to get going because there's so much to, to talk about before we're closed, but remember the eunuch in Acts that Philip found in the chariot, you know, he's riding along and, and uh, Philip comes up and he sees him reading from Isaiah and Philip says to him, he says, do you understand, or maybe it was Stephen, no, it was probably Philip, Stephen was probably stoned by then. But Philip says to him, he says, do you understand what you're reading there in Isaiah? Because he was reading about some uh, prophecies of the coming of the Savior and he says, no, how can I understand this except someone should guide me? And certainly that's true. But he admitted it, he says, how can I understand this stuff in the scriptures except there's someone who should guide me? A prophet who understands them. So Philip says, I'm your man. And he goes ahead and he tells him and he baptizes him there in the, in the river that day. But uh, 
Let's go on here. Here's another claim you'll often hear. It says, Mormons don't know if they're saved or not until they die. Okay? In other words, you've got to wait till you die, and then you find out if you've done enough works or not. You've heard this kind of thing. First off, that's not true. We'll deal with that later. Second off, often the challenge is put this way. Let's put a couple ways here in this uh, book, The Moral Illusion. Page 153 says this. We have asked Mormons and other devotees of works for salvation how many good works we have to do to be sure of our salvation. No one knows. And in page 16, this is the way it's often said for dramatic purposes by many people, do you really know for sure that if you were to die this minute, you go to heaven to be with Jesus Christ? You've heard that, haven't you? Because, of course, born-again Christians claim that they know if they were to die, they'd go right then, but, but we don't know. Apparently, this argument is that if you can know right now, it's true. And if you don't know, it's not true. On the face of it, that argument doesn't make any sense. It does not follow. But what is more important is that according to the doctrine enunciated in this book, the one I've talked to you about from their perspective, actually, born-again Christians are less sure of whether they will be saved than Mormons are. Why? Because born-again Christians have to wait until the ends of their lives to find out if they're saved. Okay? Just deal with this first, and then we'll get to the Mormons, okay? First off, born-again Christians have to wait until the end of their lives to be saved, if you're a member of this idea of thinking, as this Baptist minister is. Why? Because all your life you're proving by your good works whether or not you were saved back when you accepted Christ. Therefore, any time before you die, you could fall away. And, in other words, prove that you weren't really saved at that time. You know, it's kind of like the Catholic doctrine of annulment, right? We're not, we don't divorce anybody, you're just never married. So it's something like that. It's also a little bit like a religious practice I noticed in Japan when I was on my mission there. It was very interesting. I was riding a train once, and there was a mother and a daughter sitting across from me, and they were making all these little origami cranes, little cranes made out of paper and threading. They're just beautiful little cranes. Now, all different colors and threading them on the string, kind of like popcorn on a, on a string threading it. They had hundreds of them, maybe even thousands of them. They just kept making them and threading them. And I found out that the reason they did this was because they knew a person who was ill. They knew a person who was sick, and they were, this was their form of praying for that person. And they would take all these origami cranes and just make them all real nice, and they'd go hang them at the temple, their Buddhist temple. And if they'd made enough cranes, the person would get well, but if they hadn't, then the person wouldn't get well. Of course, the problem was that nobody knew how many cranes were necessary. You just made as many as you could, and if it was enough, the person would get well. And if not, then the person wouldn't get well. So this is a little bit like the born-again Christian doctrine. Now, that's what they think our doctrine is like, but it's not. Because, on the other hand, a Mormon can know, and may know, and should know, if he or she is in a saved condition every day of their lives. And you know that simply by the power of the Holy Ghost. I don't have to ask you, especially in this room, how many of you have ever felt the presence of the Holy Ghost before? Because I'm sure that all of you have on more than one occasion. But let me tell you, whenever you have felt that in your life, you know that you are forgiven of your sins. You are in a sinless state. You are in a saved state. And the reason you know that is because the Holy Ghost cannot dwell in anything but a clean tabernacle. Just the same as no unclean thing can enter into the kingdom of God, 
the kingdom of God, or the Holy Ghost, cannot enter into any unclean thing. And that is how you should know on a daily basis, by having the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost, by living correctly and repenting of your sins, that you are living in a saved status. Now this is culminated, of course, in our theology, in having our calling and election made sure. It's not the same thing, of course, because this is talking about having it made sure where you can't fall away from your calling. And this is talked about in the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 10 through 11. In the verses preceding this, he talks about all the things you need to do in order to have your calling and election made sure, and note that those are works. But he says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Never fall. For by doing these things, an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's the point you're aiming for, and that's the point as Latter-day Saints that we should be aiming for. Now this, having one's calling election made sure, is not something amorphous that just sort of happens one day and boom, wow, you had it made sure. It is an ordinance that occurs in the temple, and believe me, you know when it's happened. Okay? You will know when it has happened. And it will happen for every individual who enters into celestial glory, whether in this life or afterward. It is an ordinance of salvation. It is an ordinance of exaltation that has to be performed for every individual. And now, we're going to close up here with our talk about Solophidianism with one of the most wonderful arguments, I think, that shows that, no, you're wrong. Born-again Christians, you're wrong, okay? Let's look at Paul. Let's look at a man who had a vision of Jesus Christ, who was told, by the way, to go be baptized and wash away his sins, but let's not deal with that right now. After he'd had that vision, right? He went out, he devoted his entire life to Jesus Christ. He never fell away. Not once. That we know of. He just devoted his whole life to it. And that was a long time, many, many years after that vision on the road to Damascus. And so if any man was saved, he certainly was. And when was he saved? Well, he would have been saved right at that vision or shortly thereafter. Shortly thereafter. Let's look in 1 Corinthians now, chapter 9, verses 25 through 27. 1 Corinthians 9, 25 through 27, because this epistle was written 20 years after Paul's conversion. After what a born-again Christian would say, after he was saved. 20 years, this is what he's saying. Note he's not saying, I was saved 20 years ago on this date. And he's not carrying the button around saying that. But this is what he says. 9, 25 through 27. And every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore, notice talking personally about himself now, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beats the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Twenty years after Paul's conversion, he's not sure that he's going to heaven if he dies? That's not born-again doctrine. It is true doctrine, but it's not born-again Christian doctrine. Twenty years after that, he's saying, I've got to keep continually fighting, continually being obedient, lest after I preach to others, I should be a castaway. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, 
we find a similar statement. Now this is 25 years after his conversion. 12 through 14. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. And here's talking about apprehend, like, uh, you know, someone apprehends someone else, they catch someone else. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth into those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. This is a mark he hasn't reached yet. 25 years after his conversion, he is still pressing toward the mark. He's not saying, I was saved on that day. Now, finally, in his last epistle, trivia question, what was his last epistle that we have in the Bible? Chronologically. Yeah. Yes. All right. I think you've given a wrong answer in this class so far. Yes, 2 Timothy. Here's his last epistle. He is just about ready to go and be sacrificed, be beheaded in Rome. This is right at the end of his life. And now, finally, at the end of his life, after it's all over, chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, this is what he says to Timothy. Here we go. I was in 1 Timothy there. And this is just the last few words here. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. Now that it's all over, now that my life is over, and I have been able to fight the good fight of faith, as he says it, now I know that there is a crown of righteousness that the Lord has laid up and will give me. Through judgment. I'm sorry? Through, the, through Christ's judgment. Right. Through judgment right there. And he also says, and not to me only, but unto all them also. The love is appearing, so this extends to everyone. I think it clear, I know we've beaten a dead horse here, but I think it's uh, absolutely vital that we be able to demonstrate on many different fronts how completely the Bible does indeed support our doctrine that we are saved by grace, but judged according to our works. Now we're going to move on into the area of priesthood, because there's a number of problems that anti-Mormons have with priesthood. There's a number of problems they have with everything that we believe. But priesthood is the next thing we're going to go on to. Going here first off into Mormon Illusion, page 98. 98. He deals first with the Aaronic priesthood. Now let me quote a few things here so you can see uh, some interesting, just some interesting things from this book. Here's his quote from page 98. First off, he talks about the Aaronic priesthood, how it was restored, and about uh, it was Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. Okay? On May 15th, 1829. And then he says... Since Oliver Cowdery later defected from the LDS Church and was even called a liar by Joseph Smith and others, I would say that his testimony of the restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood is a little suspect to say the least. Now note this wonderful technique. Note how the author, Floyd McElveen, doesn't actually lie himself here. He doesn't say anything that's untrue, but he omits enough truth to accomplish the exact same thing. Since Oliver Cowdery later defected from the LDS Church and was even called a liar by Joseph Smith and others, I would say his testimony is a little suspect. What does he omit? He omits that Oliver never denied his testimony of the Book of Mormon and the Angel Moroni, even though he defected from the church. He omits the fact that Oliver eventually rejoined the church at much lower status than he had left as the second elder in the church, second 
only to Joseph Smith. So that's just an interesting technique there that's used. Then we go on, the very next paragraph, he says, uh, both Marvin Cowan and Gerald Tanner in their respective books, Mormon Claims Answered and Mormonism Shadow or Reality, quote several Mormon writers who totally contradict the claims of the restored Aaronic priesthood. Well, he just told us a couple paragraphs ago, which is true, that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery were the only ones there. Who are these several Mormon writers who are going to be able to contradict that? There were only two people there. Joseph Smith never denied it. Oliver Cowdery never denied it. And unless he's talking about John the Baptist here, there was no one else there who could possibly have denied it. His next paragraph, there's a big warning that should go off in your mind when you read this, okay? And it's an ignorance warning. It shows you that the writer is ignorant of what we believe. Here's where it says, The order of the Aaronic priesthood in the Mormon church includes deacons, boys 12 and 13 years of age. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> How funny. Teachers, boys 14 and 15, and priests, boys 16 and 17 years of age. Well, that's funny. That's great. At least he turned that around and got it right. In his first edition, while the saints go marching in, see, I've been quoting for more illusion because that's the one that's most common now. In that one, this is what he said. Here is the ignorance alert. That one, he got it right. Here's what he says there. On page 84 of Will the Saints Go Marching In, which is his first version of this, it's the same text but with a different name. The order of the Aaronic Priesthood in the Mormon Church includes deacons, boys 12 to 15 years of age, teachers, boys 15 to 18, and priests, boys 18 to 20 years of age. Okay, now I see some strange looks, right. He got it right in this one, but before he went to press with this one, in the first edition, uh, he was so ignorant of what we believe that he couldn't even get something as statistically simple as that down. Okay? He did correct it in this one, but when you read it here, when I read it here, because this is the one I use, this is mine, and I can mark it all up, that should give you an ignorance alert. Now, this isn't the only one in the book by any means, but it's a good example. And what an ignorance warning is, you've got to ask yourself, just how thorough is this author's research? If he can't even get this right, and if he can't get such simple things as this right, should we be willing to trust his accuracy on anything else? Uh, I think there's another one that comes up later. Yeah, there is, and that one's retained in the Mormon illusion. Page 99, now we go on to the Melchizedek priesthood. He says this, Mormon historian B.H. Roberts admits, note the word admits, it's a wonderful verb, admits that, quote, there is no definite account of the event, the conferring of the Melchizedek priesthood on Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, in the history of the prophet Joseph, or for, for matter of that, in any of our annals, unquote. So he's admitting this because this is obviously a crucial blow because there's no definite date recorded when it was restored. Well, of course, he wasn't admitting it because it's not like an admission. But of course, if this is the reason, the main reason, that this author is not willing to accept the fact that Melchizedek priesthood was restored, we know that he'll be more than willing to accept as truth that the Aaronic priesthood was restored because there was a date given for that. And he even gave it. So obviously, he's going to accept it on that basis. No. This is just a red herring. Next. Oh, this is a good one. On page 100, this deals with Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus, because he continues ever, has an unchangeable priesthood, unquote. Now, this word unchangeable is something that uh, Bornigan's try and get on us for. Here he says, according to Greek scholars like Robertson and Thayer, unchangeable means untransferable. Jesus alone for all time is our Melchizedek priest. For anyone to claim to be a Melchizedek priest today seems exceedingly unwise. Okay, do you understand their argument? They say that this priesthood is untransferable. It can't be transferred from one person to another. Therefore, 
Joseph Smith certainly couldn't have received it from Peter, James, and John because they couldn't have received it from Jesus Christ because he couldn't transfer it. It's untransferable. Once again, we note how born-in Christians who believe in the omnipotence of God find no qualms whatsoever in limiting God and being able to transfer his priesthood power. If this is true, then they would have to think that Christ is subject to the priesthood and not the other way around. But that's not the main point. Let me read to you here from Vine's Expository Dictionary, which is extremely well-respected. I've read to it, you from it before. And on page 166, it has this to say about unchangeable. Apatabatos is the Greek word. Apatabatos is used of the priesthood of Christ in Hebrews 7.24. Unchangeable, unalterable, inviolable. Now listen to what it says here. The more literal meaning in... American version and revised version margins that does not pass from one to another. Okay, that's the more literal meaning, that it is untransferable. He says the more literal meaning that does not pass from one to other is not to be preferred. This active meaning is not only untenable and contrary to the constant usage of the word, but does not adequately fit with either the preceding or the succeeding context. So here in Vines, extremely well respected, it says that the interpretation of the word apatabatos, unchangeable, should not be untransferable. It doesn't even fit there. Now, if you want the real corker on this word apatabatos in Vines' uh, expository dictionary, let me introduce to you a passage from Walter Martin's book, The Maze of Mormonism. Okay? Page 135, from his chapter titled, The Myth of Mormonism's Priesthood. Now, you listen to this and see what a liar Walter Martin is. And I'll call him a liar on record. And if he wants to bring a lawsuit against me, he can, because truth is a defense against any such slander. Since Jesus Christ, I'm quoting now, since Jesus Christ continues to live by resurrection, he holds the Melchizedek priesthood, according to Hebrews 7.24, inviolate or without successors. And then he says, apatabaton, See Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words. Then he says, This demolishes Mormonism's claim that Joseph Smith could have received it or could have had authority to transmit it. So here he quotes from this book that I just read to you from. He says that Vine says it's untransferable when Vine says exactly the opposite. When is there Joseph it being called the Melchizedek Priesthood? How does Melchizedek come into it if only Christ holds it? Their only justification is that uh, Melchizedek was the only other person who held it. He was like a type of Christ, and then no one else held it until Christ, and no one else holds it after him. That's their justification. I'm not going to try and defend it. Is there another hand? Okay. So once again, let me just give this as an example to you. Never trust an anti-Mormon. Walter Martin is a liar. He's a professional liar. He makes his living by lying. Indeed, this is to be called the Mahan, the Mahan principle. To be able to lie or sin, or in Mahan's case, murder, and get gain through doing it. Now, we've got 15 minutes. I'm going to try and get through the rest of this. So we'll have time in our last class next week to get through everything I want to get through there. Let's go to page 100 now of the Mormon illusion. Let me read this to you. One look at the Mormon church with its restored Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood should convince anyone who is at all acquainted with the New Testament church that the Mormons have restored too much, exclamation point. They've restored what was never there. 
there were no officers such as Aaronic or Melchizedek priests, Seventies, high priests, etc., in the New Testament church. Okay, one, let's look at what the Mormons have restored that was in the New Testament that born-agains don't have. First, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, Ephesians 4, 11-14, which says not only that they had them, but that they are essential. So where are these offices in the born-again churches? Elders in Acts 11.30, bishops and deacons in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Since all of these offices were in the New Testament, why don't the born-agains have them too, if they claim, as they do, to be the New Testament church? Here he's ragged because we got a few offices he says aren't in the New Testament. What about all the offices we have, we say are restored, that are in the New Testament that they don't have? That has to do with uh, living in glass houses and throwing stones. Now let's deal with these other three offices. He says, we restore, we restore too much that weren't in the New Testament. First off, 70. Okay, here's the other ignorance warning for today. Luke 10, verse 1, talks about the 70 in the New Testament. Is that what you were going to say, Brent? Uh, well, that and uh, the Old Testament. Isn't well, he's only interested in the New Testament right here. So, yeah, that was definitely there in, in the Old Testament, too, and that's why it was brought into the New Testament churches, all from the beginning, all the way up to the present. But then again, we're the only people who understand that, too. But the 70 is talked about in Luke 10, verse 1. There's another ignorance warning. If this guy's so ignorant, he doesn't even know that, then maybe we shouldn't be trusting our eternal salvation to what he says we should do. The other two he talks about, says we uh, restore too much our priests and high priests. Now, just because, first off, just because they aren't mentioned in the New Testament doesn't mean they didn't exist. Okay? It's part of the New Testament church. Number two, priests and high priests were offices had in Old Testament times under the priesthood of Aaron. I hope we're all familiar with that. If not, just start studying your Old Testament. Now, here we have to note something important. This Aaronic priesthood was to be everlasting. In two places in the Old Testament, the Aaronic priesthood is referred to as an everlasting priesthood. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 15, Exodus 40, 15, and Numbers chapter 25, verse 13, the Aaronic priesthood is called an everlasting priesthood. And in fact, the Bible tells us that in the last days, the Aaronic priesthood will still be here upon the earth. That's how everlasting it is. It doesn't just mean up till the time of Christ, it means to the second coming of Christ. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. I read the first two verses because that establishes the time as the second coming. Right, that's not the first coming. And in verse 3, listen what it says. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. No way they can offer an offering in righteousness unless they have the priesthood. And this is the last days. So when it was first given, it was told it would be everlasting. And the last book in the Old Testament, it is prophesied it will be here in the last days. And yet, the Mormon illusion doesn't recognize this. In page 102, this is what the person who wrote the Mormon illusion says. Old Testament priests had as their chief function the offering of blood sacrifices and as an atonement for sin. All their sacrifices symbolized the day when Christ the Lamb of God would shed his blood for our sins. Now here's his conclusion. 
when Jesus died on the cross, the picture was fulfilled and the need for sacrifices and therefore the need for priests was done away with. Well, not according to the Bible in the verses I just quoted to you. So once again, he's contrary to what the Bible clearly states. Another ignorance warning. Now, number three, I've just talked about that just because they aren't mentioned doesn't mean they, don't, they didn't exist in the New Testament. The second thing is that the priest and high priest were offices in the Aaronic priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood was clearly stated to be an eternal priesthood, an everlasting priesthood, and therefore we shouldn't be too surprised to see that the office of priest and high priest, which are the offices then in the Aaronic priesthood, would continue with the Aaronic priesthood. Okay, just so you got that line of reasoning before I jump on to number three. Number three, even if priests and high priests were not in the New Testament church, which we can't say for sure, just because they're not mentioned doesn't mean they weren't there, but even if they were not in the New Testament church, the church is not just, the Mormon church in other words, does not claim just to be a restoration of New Testament Christianity. We claim to be a restoration of all previous dispensations. And that includes the Old Testament and those offices of high priest and priest. Now really briefly, and I hope that this will enhance your appreciation of the Aaronic priesthood in this church as compared with the Aaronic priesthood of the Old Testament. If we look at the Aaronic priesthood of the Old Testament, we find the high priest. There was one high priest at any time, correct? Just say yes. Yeah. Fine. The first high priest was Aaron. Right. Then he, there were priests under him. And with Aaron, these were his sons. Correct? And all those who descended from Aaron, his sons anyway, were priests. And after Aaron died, it was the eldest who took over the office of high priest, okay? So there's still only one high priest at any time. Then under the priests were the Levites. And when I say Levites, of course I mean the Levites other than the descendants of Aaron, because Aaron himself was a Levite, and so were his children and his descendants. So the other Levites were underneath them. There's often a misconception in the church that the Levitical priesthood is synonymous with the Aaronic priesthood. It's not. But I'll bet you've heard that, haven't you? The Aaronic priesthood is a lesser portion. Excuse me, the Levitical priesthood is a lesser portion of the Aaronic priesthood. The Levites had the Levitical priesthood. Aaron and his descendants had the Aaronic priesthood, which included the Levitical priesthood. Kind of like as now the Aaronic priesthood includes, or is included in the Melchizedek priesthood. Now, if we compare this, first off, let's talk about this. The high priest presided, made sure everything was going right, okay? The priests sacrificed. It was their job to do the sacrifices, okay? What did the Levites do? Well, in our terminology today, they did the grunt work. They prepared and they cleaned up. And this is why in Numbers chapter 16, Korah and his followers, who were all Levites, came up and said to Aaron and Sedra and Moses, how come you guys get to do all the sacrifices and all the cool stuff? We just do this grunt work. And that was where this huge rebellion happened, the rebellion of Korah. You can read about it there in, in Numbers chapter 16. But that's why, because they didn't have the same functions as did the priests and Aaron. Now, of course, to typify what the Levites did is just grunt work isn't fair because, I mean, they had to have the priesthood just to do that, just to prepare and clean up. They had to have the priesthood. All right, let's compare this now with what happens today. In every ward, first off, we know that there are priests. Okay, just think of that in terms of what we think of as priests. What do priests do? What is the main thing that priests do? Bless the sacrament. Right, they bless and they break the sacrament. 
they do the sacrifice today. That is the sacrifice. Every week we witness a representation of the sacrifice that Christ offered. We look back now through it, even as then when they did it, they looked forward to Christ's sacrifice. Underneath them, they have who? Deacons. Deacons. Deacons and teachers, right. But we can look at deacons and teachers. We have a separation there, but that's fine. And what do they do? Right. They prepare. Actually, let me see here. Uh, deacons uh, prepare and clean up and teachers can pass. Correct? Right. No. no. It's the other way around? Yeah. I always get these mixed up because I wasn't raised up in the church. All right. But anyway, it is divided up between them. But right. They prepare, they clean up, and they can pass as well. But they can't do the sacrifice. And above the priests is what? The bishop. Right. The bishop is there. Above the priests. And what does the bishop have to be? A high priest. Exactly right. The bishop is the high priest of the Aaronic priesthood in every ward. And that's right, Richard. He presides over it to make sure it's all done right. That's his responsibility. Make sure it's all done right in according to rules. And if you look at this, compare them. It's exactly the same today as it was then. Except they look forward to Christ's sacrifice. We look back. And in addition to the Aaronic priesthood today, we have the Melchizedek Priesthood, which was restored. Finally now, and I'm going to get through the end of this. I'm so excited. All right. <laughs> Finally, this book, The Mormon Illusion, makes the same mistake that almost all anti-Mormon books make in this area. They spend page after page saying, you don't have any priesthood. No more priesthood is necessary. It's all been done away with. And you just heard that quote, right, from pages 102 and 103. You heard the quote that I read that uh, when Jesus died on the cross, the picture was fulfilled and the need for sacrifices and therefore the need for priests was done away with, right? It's all over. They talk about how Christ is the only priest. He's their high priest in the heavens, etc., going to Hebrews, okay? And after they do all this, they turn right around, and what do they do? They claim, we have a priesthood. We born-again Christians have a priesthood. They just go to all the trouble showing it's not necessary, then they start claiming it for themselves and say, we have a priesthood. And the reason they do that is because the New Testament refers to it. In two scriptures, the New Testament shows not only that they had a priesthood after Christ, but they show that there would be a priesthood in heaven. Not only that they had a priesthood then, but that there would be a priesthood forever. So, what do the born-agains have to do? They have to say, well, we have that priesthood. Because, obviously, we are the true Christians, and therefore, what was written in the New Testament applies directly to us, which of course is a ridiculous assumption. Let me just get off a second here on this one. This is one of my chief peeves with churches who take things that were written in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and apply them to themselves. Okay, grab a letter of Paul, right? For instance, some place uh, might be said in the New Testament that once you have believed that you, you become the sons of God, you get power to become sons of God to all them such as believed, all right? And they go, well, look, he's writing to us. And therefore, since we believe, we have power to become the sons of God. That's the most asinine thing in the world. One wonders if they ever think about what they're really saying. In other words, if I took a letter here, okay, and I, I was madly in love with Colleen, okay? Bear with me. I say, Colleen, I write about all my heart's desires, and I'm madly in love with you, and I make it in a letter. I say, sign it, seal it up and everything, and I give it to you, okay? And you cherish it forever, of course, because it means so much to you. But you die, it goes into your attic, it lies there for 2,000 years, completely dust-ridden, moldy, but still legible. 
and 2,000 years later, I am considered a great religious leader. It doesn't even make any difference if we throw that in. But 2,000 years, some person finds it, goes into the attic, reads, uh, it says, Colleen, I love you. And then he says, wow. This cool guy, Radio Free Mormon, loves me. Can you imagine anything as idiotic to take a letter written 2,000 years ago to someone else and think it applies to you? What presumption? What arrogance? And yet that's exactly the same thing that they do. Okay, but it's what they got to do, right? They got no revelation. They got no prophets. They killed them all off. They wouldn't have them now. And so they've got to do these stupid things. But there are two New Testament scriptures that show that they had a priesthood, that they will have a priesthood in eternity. The first one's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says this, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. How many times have we heard that? A holy nation, etc. A peculiar people. You're a royal priesthood. That was said long after Christ ascended into heavens. It was said to the members of the church. So, they got to say, well, we have a priesthood. You guys don't have a priesthood. It's no longer necessary, but we have a priesthood. Okay? It's ridiculous. They did have a priesthood. And let me ask you something. What priesthood could be more royal than the priesthood of Melchizedek, the priesthood after the order of the Son of God? It's called the royal priesthood. Closing fast, Revelations 1, chapter, verses 4 through 6, talks about this. Let me just read verse 6. Jesus Christ hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. How can you be a priest unless you have a priesthood? You can't. Therefore, the fact that they're going to be made kings and priests shows that they will have to have a priesthood even then. So they have to claim it. So these two scriptures show the priesthood did continue in the New Testament church in spite of what they say and that the priesthood will continue forever. Well, it also shows that there was an office of a priest. Yeah. That's a good point, even in heaven. Okay, so everything they say, it's, it's gone. It's gone. Because they spend all their time arguing with us, then they, then they turn right around and say, well, we have a priesthood anyway, which really goes to prove our point. Next week, we're going to do a whole hodgepodge of things, a potpourri. And I hope you'll be here for that, and it should be exciting. We need a closing prayer. Well, that is the 11th lecture and final lecture, as it turns out, of the Institute class that I, Radio Free Mormon, gave in the Institute building at the University of Texas at Austin in the spring of 1989. I hope you've enjoyed the series. I hope you've learned some principles that will help you better defend the faith. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.